Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and we have something a little different planned for this episode, but I think that you are going to like it a lot. Uh, Last week, I returned from my first visit to the biggest week in American birding, the Big Bird Festival at the Migration Hotspot in Northwest Ohio on the south shore of Lake Erie, and I can report that all of the accolades about it are absolutely for real. The weather was less than cooperative while I was there, like it can be, can't predict that, and bird numbers were down a little, but there were still a lot of good things to see, a lot of excited birders, lots of good looks at species that I don't always get good looks at. It's pretty amazing how that boardwalk at McGee Marsh seems to erase the fear these migratory birds might have around people, and it puts them right down in front of your face. It's, it's really extraordinary. And I heard that things began to pick up once I had left for home, which is obviously the way these things go. And uh, diversity is quite good the last week of the festival. And it's always, you know, a wonderful place to see friends from around the birding community, which is half of the fun of an event like this. So kudos to the Kaufmans, the staff of Black Swamp Bird Observatory, uh, Rob Ritma from Saberwing Nature Tours, who puts together the bird trips, uh, and all the other folks who work so hard to make this event an unmissable one. If you ever find yourself with an opportunity to get to the biggest week, uh, try to make it happen. One of the more fun events at this year's festival was a keynote panel discussion led by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt editor Lisa White and ABA president Jeff Gordon and featuring a number of essayists from the new book, Good Birders Still Don't Wear White. And we are bringing you highlights from that panel discussion in this episode. It features some folks that you might know from the birding community. Uh, I am one of those panelists, but you will also hear from Catherine Hamilton, who is an amazing bird artist and now a representative from Zeiss Optics, uh, Tom Stevenson, co-author of the excellent The War Warbler Guide, Chuck Hagner, a former editor of Birdwatching Magazine, Greg Miller, one of the principals from the Mark of Masick book, The Big Year, and a leader for Wildside Nature Tours now, and Carlos Betancourt, the lead guide for the Canopy Lodges in Panama. It is a great group of people who come at birding from a lot of different directions, and we'll hear from them all after a brief Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of May 2017. For the third straight episode, we'll start with Florida, where the ABA area's sixth record of Bahama Woodstar turned up in Brevard County. This is the first Woodstar for Florida since 1981, so they've been waiting a long time for another one. But in the interim, one Bahama Woodstar turned up at a feeder in eastern Pennsylvania in 2013, definitely one of the oddest ABA area records in recent memory. Another surprise comes from Connecticut, where a black-backed oriole was reported near Stamford. The Pennsylvania black-backed oriole was last seen at the beginning of April, and Stamford is only about 150 miles east-northeast of where that bird spent much of the early spring. Is this the same one feeling it's Zugenrua and heading north? Do we need to invoke the two-bird theory? Who knows? The situation certainly gets curiouser and curiouser. First records for the period include a common crane in Coconino, Arizona. Notably, Utah also had its first common crane a few weeks ago, so it seems that these sandhill flocks migrating over the Great Basin are picking up a few extra-limital stragglers. Note that it was not that long ago that New Mexico and Texas had their first records as well. This is a small taste of the rarity landscape in the ABA area for the last couple weeks. For the whole roundup, check out the Rare Bird Alert post published on the ABA blog every Friday morning. You can also get the most recent updates on these and other rare birds at the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That's at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA rare. 
so this is the panel that we've been telling you all about. It begins with Houghton Mifflin Harcourt editor Lisa White explaining a little bit about what they were trying to accomplish with this new collection of essays. So the idea for this book was to have birders share what they love about birding. So whether, whether it's because it's just fun or it helps put your problems in perspective, it helps understand the world around you, connects us with other people, whatever it is that they love about birding, that's what we wanted to convey in this book. So we will start uh, as sort of a warm up here with either a highlight or something that you hope to see here at The Biggest Week. Um, when you introduce yourself and then say a highlight or, or something you're hoping to see this week. So we'll start down at the far end. Uh, hello, my name is Nate Swick. I do social media and, and stuff for the American Birding Association. I to host a podcast for the ABA. Yeah, this is my, this is my first year uh, at Biggest Week in American Birding. And, um, you know, I, I, I sort of live online. I'm sort of a generation that does that. And, you know, this is one of those events that totally saturates the entire online birding world for this 10 week, 10 days during during May. And so, you know, there's always this, since I, I haven't had the opportunity to be here before, and so just being able to be a part of this whole experience, um, whether or not the birds are cooperating or not, just the whole thing is such a, a wonderful experience and I'm really excited to be a part of it. And also, um, I also have nothing to compare it to, so this, this, week, this one has been great. <laughs> hey. I'm Katherine Hamilton. I am an artist and a birder, and I think probably my highlights or what I look forward to most is that I cut my teeth on East Coast and Eastern Flyway spring birding, and now I'm based out of Los Angeles and I travel way too much. So the first thing I like to do is I come back on the boardwalk, I make sure I have no name tags, no nothing, and I just like to stand there and just listen and smell and just soak it in. And then once I'm acclimated like that, then it's time to start birding. Very good. Uh, I'm Tom Stevenson. Uh, I'm the author of the Warbler Guide book and apps and the Bird Genie app and a lot of photos and books and museums in different places. Um, I think for me, the thing I look forward to seeing the most is being on the boardwalk and having a first-time birder look at a black Bernian warbler or something like that and go, I had no idea this thing existed in the world. That to me is like the key benefit of this whole festival and I've seen it happen many times and it's, it's a thrilling experience and that's, that's what I look forward to. Hi, I'm uh, Chuck Hagner. I'm a uh, member of the board of the directors of the Western Great Lakes Bird and Bat Observatory in Wisconsin. And until February of this year, I was the editor-in-chief of Birdwatching Magazine. And uh, both of those occupations of mine have uh, given me the opportunity to see a, an endangered warbler, the Kirtland's warbler, um, in the Bahamas. Um, and I've had the chance to uh, see it and hear it in Wisconsin, um, but I've never seen it where most people have seen it, uh, either in Michigan or here during this festival. So one of the things that I would love to do one day is to be here when a Kirtland's warbler is within the field of view of my binoculars. Hi, I'm Greg Miller. I'm the character that Jack Black portrays in the movie The Big Year. And I've been coming up here to Northwestern Ohio to see warblers 
this is my 34th year. So I was here. We had a festival long before there was people. <laughs> and we had dearth paths and we used boots and stuff. And it used to get flooded all the time. But the thing that I look forward to every single year is Christmas. It, this is Christmas for me. And the way the trees get decorated is with warblers. And the, I, my favorite warbler is black burning warbler. Some of them winter as far south as Ecuador. They make the 4,000 mile trek back through Central America, up past us into Canada, just to nest. And so on its 4,000 mile journey, this bird that weighs less than three sheets of copier paper has made an incredible trek, and I get to experience an encounter with something that has made an incredible journey just for a moment in time. And I savor those moments every time I get a chance. Hola. <laughs> my name is Carlos Betancourt. I'm from Panama, so I just, I'm migrating with the birds. So, yeah. So it took us a little while to get here, but I'm happy to be here. I was looking forward to be at this festival. This is my third year. Yesterday, I had a, uh, did a walk at the, on the boardwalk, and I I was looking at these uh, young kids, uh, looking at this uh, uh, red-winged blackbird, but it was a young male, and he was trying to figure out what it was. And I was there, and I said, oh, it's a red-winged blackbird male, and we started talking about why this kid was so happy, so he was, I don't know how many times he said thank you, but you know, so that's, that's the beauty of it, that you can share birding, and I love that. So I'm looking forward was to uh, meet new birders, and also some of the experienced birders here, and friends as well. So I have my checklist of, of birds that I see, and then people too. So yeah, <laughs> so yeah, all right. Okay, so to the heart of the matter, we're here because of this book, and what we're gonna do is have each of the panelists give a little summary of the essay that they wrote for the book and then read a very brief excerpt. Let's, should we go the other way and start with Carlos? All right, so you guys all got the book, right? Everybody? No? A portion of the proceeds from every purchase of this book goes to the American Birding Association. So when you buy the book, you can feel good about making a donation to your favorite bird organization. Page 135. <laughs> Okay, um, so my title of, the, of, the, of this uh, essay is Being a Bird Guy in Panama is the Best Job Ever. And this is how I feel really about my job. So, and I'm going to uh, read something short for you guys here. Bird watching is amazing. I love every aspect of it. From calls and colors to interesting behavior. I love that while I'm birding, I can connect with the natural wor world as well with birders, other birders. So that's a little bit of it. So you can read the rest, right? <laughs> uh, I wrote about something a little bit different uh, than you might think. Everybody knows, well, I'm going to read the paragraph because it says why I wrote what I did. The people who know me usually associate my name with one of the characters in the 2011 movie, The Big Year. I was the real-life birder portrayed by Jack Black. And a few of you have read the nonfiction book the movie was based on, The Big Year by Mark Masick in 2004. The movie says I did my big year because I wanted to make something out of my life. But really, I did the big year for a less ambitious reason. My life was a wreck. 
<laughs> and I used uh, I used burning as a coping mechanism to keep myself from wallowing around in self-pity for having my life fall apart. Because one of the worst things in life is to, if you have bad things happen, you could make it worse by wallowing in self-pity because then it doesn't make anything better and people don't enjoy you anymore. But uh, I, I write a little bit of my story and how doing a big year actually helped me cope with that situation and it became a wonderful distraction because I threw myself into the big year. Had I not thrown myself into the big year the way that I did, I might not have gotten to 700 species of birds, and I might not be in a book, and I wouldn't be in a movie, and I wouldn't be sitting here. So, uh, cool, bad things happened. <laughs> the great thing is, is I didn't stay there, and birding helped me get out of it. So it's called Windex for the Soul. Because when you focus on your problems, it's like a big lens, and it magnifies everything bad. And the harder you focus and the harder you try, the worse things get. But when you go birding, it doesn't fix your problems, but sometimes it's like taking a, a paper towel and some Windex and cleaning a window. And you, have a, you come back to the same problems, and you look at it with a different perspective and say, oh, that's not as bad as I thought. So... Birding, Windex for the Soul, read it. I wrote about patch birding. Um, and for those of you who don't know what that is, it's uh, birding the same uh, patch. Uh, not far from my home, I birded a, uh, a county park. Uh, my home is in Milwaukee. The park is a, a narrow strip of land along the Milwaukee River about five minutes from my back door. Um, but like all the county parks in maybe many cities um, around the country, there's been a shortage of fund and a great backlog of work. And um, the uh, creeping uh, garlic mustard and, and buckthorn and some unsavory, reputedly unsavory characters in the park had given, given uh, it a bad name. Um, but it, uh, it didn't really sit well with me because it's a place that I had been walking regularly for a number of years and uh, recording the comings and goings of warblers and other birds um, without any incident whatsoever. In 2000, the Wisconsin Society for Ornithology, in the fourth edition of its essential bird finding guide, Wisconsin's favorite bird haunts, described the park, Esterbrook Park, as, quote, great for birding. The designation was thanks largely to the river, which serves as a guiding line for northward migrating Nearctic, Nearctropical species. They fly at night, often great distances, and most individuals stop frequently during the day to rest and refuel, putting down in almost any conceivable shelter. Scientists say urban swatches containing even small amounts of low-quality vegetation are valuable since they enable birds simply to survive so they can continue migrating another day. Yet when the fifth edition of Bird Haunts appeared in 2009, Esterbrook was left out, as were two other county parks that had been featured in the previous edition. And I'll just leave that at there, because that was the moment that I decided that patch birding, my patch birding, um, unlike like Michael O'Brien writes a similar essay, he, he writes about um, patch birding in his backyard, and he draws a lot of conclusions in his essay about uh, the behavior and the abundance and the appearance and the, the timing of the individual birds that he sees and doesn't see throughout the year in his yard. But I 
wanted just mass. I wanted a large number of birds, and I wanted to say, look, here's 162 species of birds that are using this forsaken strip of county parkland. And I took it to the uh, county parks, and I took it to the village um, that make decisions about development issues around there, and I used it as an advocacy tool for conserving the habitat that I knew and that I could demonstrate the birds were using. And that's what my essay is about. I'm thinking let's skip to Nate Swick because Nate, you also talked about uh, geographical, um, res geographically restricted birding. Sure, thanks. Um, so I wrote an essay about, um, about county listing. So um, my home state of North Carolina has 100 counties, which is a really wonderfully round number. And uh, it is my goal is my goal to see 100 species in as many counties as I possibly could, and and part of that was because I'm I'm in addition to loving birds I'm, I'm sort of a map head as well so I really like geog you know geography, and um, you know counties and state lines are so arbitrary but they often have sort of these wonderful stories about them, and. Um, you know, some of the, I also kind of went into it because the birders that I really respected the most as I was, you know, coming on, becoming a birder, were these people that have these, this really wonderful fine-scale knowledge about where to find things and how to look for things. And, and part of that is, is by going into these counties and being conscious of where habitats are in all these myriad different places throughout, throughout your state. And so that's sort of what I was trying to get at. And also, you know, I, you know, I'll, I'll defend listing too. Listing's fun too. I like keeping track of the birds I see. I like kind of the data and analysis aspect of it as well. So, so I know that keeping lists gets a bad rap sometimes. There's a certain obsessiveness to it that cannot be denied. To be a lister is to turn birds into commodities or worse, mere numbers devoid of meaning. The word practically invites you to sneer when you say it. And to be a county lister, to break the already arbitrary political boundaries of the United States into their most arbitrary segments, it's inane, it's fanatical, it's birding pedantry at its most pedantic, and it's glorious. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so it's sort of like what, what Chuck is getting at. <laughs> you sort of want to shrink the playing field, shrink the parameters of what you want to do. Uh, into a point where you want to learn as much as you can about this little place. And uh, part of that for me was out of necessity. I have young children, and so my days of you know traveling far and wide across the state or the southeast were, were kind of cut out from under me. My weekends are a lot of um, you know baseball games and birthday parties and all sorts of those things. Um, and so you know keeping this this idea of, of birding within my county, Guilford County, North Carolina, in the Western Piedmont, um, it really encouraged me to dig deep into this place, uh, to make a real effort, to make a real contribution to the ornithological record in this place. You know, so many of these counties, um, birders tend to go to some places more than others, um, and I wanted to kind of break out of that rut. I wanted to kind of focus on some of these counties in my part of the state that people don't go to for whatever reason and try and make a contribution, try and find things there. Um, there's all these sort of wonderful discoveries you can make when you when you shrink down what you're doing, and that's sort of what my essay was about. Hi. Okay. So my essay is entitled Color y Calor, and so it's about color and heat, and that. I'm just going to read and then paraphrase. Um, I sit on the deck of our lodge, watching an astonishing array of tropical birds as they come into the feeders here. It is siesta hour. We are north, north of Boca Tapada, Costa Rica, and somewhere south of the Nicaraguan border. 
and it is hot and humid in a way that makes my mind attempt to get out of my body. So now I'll paraphrase, I probably have heat stroke at this point. And it is really, really hot, and I've been birding since before sunrise. I've been out for probably eight hours already, and I'm on a pretty serious birding expedition. Um, it's, not, it's not all a pleasure trip. I'm actually doing some work and helping some people out. And I think that's probably about enough that I can paraphrase. I am drawing at feeders. I really want to draw. That's what I do with my siesta hours. If I have downtime, a lot of times if I'm on an expedition, there's not enough time for me to draw, so downtime. And I'm looking at things like keel build toucans. Um, there's a lot of parrots. You've got the usual like dactus and you know beautiful, beautifully, beautifully colored tropical birds are coming in. And I've got a paint kit and a lot of humidity and paper that's curling, and I have heat stroke. And I'm trying to reconcile all of this like riot of colors that are in front of me with quickly moving birds. And I'm trying to make sense of it all. And my palette is turning into a big muddy mess because cadmium yellow pale especially will not dry in the tropics. And it's gotten everywhere. And so that's what I'm dealing with. And I'm thinking very, very deep heat stroke thoughts. <laughs> I am ostensibly drawing a bird, its parts, its body, but when I get to the edge of a bird, perhaps I also want to look at the plants around it, or its larger habitat, or its habitats over the course of a full year, or the habitats at the edge of its habitats. How does one define the boundaries? Do I decide that the colors end at the edge of a bird, or do I extend them outward, affected by air or environment, light reflected off of the green of a bromeliad, the highlights of a tropical sun? Where does a bird end and its habitat begin? How do you get those concepts into a drawing? And so my essay is pretty much just about, I have heat stroke. <laughs> the editors did a very good job of, of taming the heat stroke in the essay. and. Um, what I'm thinking about is that a bird is not just a bird. The bird identification is not just that bird. It's the place where the bird is. It's the habitat the bird is in. If you're making a painting, the color is not just the field guide colors on the bird. It's the color of the larger environment. So I just make an analogy, and you should just read it. <laughs> so for me, um, birding is an excuse, really. It's, it's an excuse to look more thoroughly it's something to listen more thoroughly to learn more things it's kind of like just a reason to apply myself in ways that I might never have done before and to me that's really the the key of of birding uh, and it's a great lifelong opportunity to do all that um, the essay that I wrote here is uh, sort of more on the sound side of things and um, I used to um, travel a lot for birding, like into South America and Africa and different places, and then I started guiding. And one of the things that frustrated me is I didn't know the vocalizations. So I learned a lot of the vocalizations of, of my local areas, but you know, it's, it's kind of overwhelming to hear two or 300 songs and not know what they are. So I decided I must learn how to recognize these. And um, part of the process of doing that led to some of the things that are in the Warbler Guide where we talk about structure of song and really approach song in a whole new new way. Um, and part of my essay is about sort of techniques of memorizing songs. And that has really led to um, a lot of other applications for that whole research into memory and so on um, for me. But um, So let me just write, read this one little uh, bit here. Unfortunately, all my paragraphs are fairly long, but... Uh, <laughs> So uh, it says, years ago, I began to travel to see birds in exotic lands around the world, which I would highly recommend. It's really amazing. 
Uh, for these trips, I wanted to replicate the, the feeling of familiarity I had on my home turf. This required learning many, often hundreds of vocalizations for bird-rich countries. And that's a very daunting task. At least it was for me at the time. Have any of you driven around in your car with like the Stokes CD in there and listened to it over and over again and then walked away and not known a single bird? Yeah, all of us have done that. And there's a good reason for that because the brain doesn't learn things that way. But anyway, that's a different topic. <laughs> um, failing many times, I finally decided that I had to study memory theory to find out how to efficiently learn something as abstract as songs. As might be expected, how we humans and many other species learn has been heavily studied for years, and although there's still much to be uncovered, there are core techniques that have been confirmed effective by many diverse studies. And that's really true. The, the thing that I found that was interesting was that theories on how to memorize converge very rapidly into several key sort of um, curricula. Uh, using this information, I eventually was able to learn many vocalizations for my overseas journeys. The good news is that the effective techniques are very simple, and it takes a surprisingly small amount of time to learn 50 or 100 vocalizations using just basic, simple strategies. And I've listed the main ones in, as the tips in the book, but um, to me that was uh, sort of one of the great benefits of birding, is it led me down that path of memorization and, and, and many other things as well. Oh, thanks, Tom, and, and thank you all. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to throw this next question out to the panelists, and um, I'm going to make one request. If you could um, just say, you know, this is, um, this is Nate or this is Carlos. Um, you know, it is wonderful to wax poetic about the, you know, the feeling of birding and, and what it means to us and where it might be going in the future, but I always find that what what sticks with people is, is stuff they can use. Like if you can tell them something that they can actually apply in their own burning life, it, it's like the best gift you can give somebody. So uh, Lisa and I were curious on the panelists, um, what's a tip or technique or practice that you have really found valuable? And maybe you would especially encourage um, the, the fresher uh, birders out here to uh, to, to learn quickly and, and apply. So who would like to answer that first? Okay. I'll, I'll jump. Um, here's one tip that I would recommend. A lot of times people will see a bird, say a black and white warbler, and they'll look at it long enough to say, ah, it's a black and white warbler. And then they stop and they start looking for other birds. My tip would be, after you know what the bird is, study it. Spend 30 seconds with that bird at least and learn three new things about that bird. Look at the undertail, look at the supercilium, look at the mallow region. Just sort of really study that bird and try to learn three new things before you jump to the next bird. I think that's a really valuable tip and will lead to you being a much better birder in a, in a very short period of time, actually. This is uh, Chuck. Even though I've spent uh, 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 an inordinate amount of time reading about birds, uh, as, as the editor of Birdwatching Magazine and uh, had the great good fortune to talk with lots of people who know a great deal about birds. And I've spent a, spent a fair amount of time uh, looking at birds out in the field through my binoculars and spotting scope. I, I, I still um, have a, a pang of jealousy whenever I come across a person who has intimate hands-on knowledge of birds. Um, and, and they're easy to come up with. They're, they're, they're field biologists, they're bird banders, 
Um, there are even uh, pet owners, bird owners, and uh, and farmers. Uh, the um, what you can learn about plumage, about behavior, about the bird's habits, um, about what it eats, is uh, I think so valuable, and it's something that I'm always struck by that that after all the years that I've spent studying, I don't have that insight that a person who has intimate hands-on knowledge has. So if you have an opportunity to volunteer at a, at a, at, with a wildlife rehabber, volunteer on any sort of a study project, um, pay attention with banders. I think that just being close to birds, handling birds um, in an approved and licensed manner uh, it would be uh, very valuable. Um, well, uh, how many newbies, oh, how many new birders do we have here? How many of you consider to be a new birder here? Uh, raise your hands, don't be shy. There we go, good. Yeah, uh, one of the, the, the things uh, for you guys, uh, the new one, is if you are in your backyard, make sure you get to know the common birds really well. Get to know the calls and everything. That way, when you hear something different, you know, oh, something different here. But sometimes we, you know, we're used to the birds, oh, it's a robin or this. Oh, you know, we don't pay attention so much of the calls. But just pay attention to all the calls of the birds or the common ones. So that way you can separate when something new show up in your area. So that's one tip from me here. Um, so mine's pretty simple, and it's pretty obvious coming from me, but do not be afraid to take notes and make little sketches when you're in the field. Just try it. We're not talking about making art. We're not talking about making beautiful bird drawings. I'm talking about fixing a memory in a completely different way. If you use your hand and a pencil and a piece of paper to make any kind of mark that reminds you of what you saw, you will remember it in a completely different way and you probably won't forget it. So you don't have to draw a whole warbler. You could maybe indicate, oh, there was black kind of here or there was a line there, or there was a way in which a wing was cocked. I'm not talking about actually drawing it out. I'm talking about just making a mark and remembering what it was, writing it down so that you remember it verbally. And you can do the same thing for songs. I do that for sounds a lot because I'm a, a primarily visual person. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to draw. I'm going to go draw the warbler, but don't do what I do. Do what I say. Um, <laughs> I will go out and I will force myself to listen to songs in a new environment, a new habitat, and I will make little notations, up slur here, down slur here, buzzy here. And none of that makes any sense, but then I remember it. I go home and I was like, oh, that was that kind of thing. All right, and that's my only tip. I, I suppose I would say don't be afraid to be wrong. Um, there are so many ways that birds can fool you um, the light can be a certain way. They can have plumage abnormalities. Um, the, you can get you know, a quick look and not get a full idea of what you're seeing. Uh, don't be afraid to be wrong. You know, I learn so much more when I make just like some sort of awful identification mistake than when I do being right. And if you want to learn, um, you know, make mistakes. And I think some people are almost afraid of making mistakes sometimes, but I mean, I, I can tell you everyone up here, like we make, I, I, I'll, I'll speak for myself, like I make mistakes all the time. You know, you try and fix them and you become better and that's, that's how it works. Thank you, all of you, those were great tips. And I'm sure you have tons of others, but we wanna make sure to give the audience time to ask questions if anyone has 
questions for any of the panelists up here or for Jeff and myself. And that includes the panelists, too, if you have questions for each other. So, Any, any questions? Mine is not exactly a question, but I think coming to the biggest week is one of the best ways to learn about the birds. Everyone is so helpful. You know, it, it's such a, a wonderful experience here because you could walk up to anyone and just whisper, what are you watching? And I have learned so much from the other birders and, uh, and I also took Tom's tip uh, from the uh, talk this morning. We were watching a black and white, my daughter and I, and we, he kept moving, went around the tree, and it was a whole new experience for us uh, that we learned from you this morning, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, I have to say, uh, I've tried in several, like, you know, Toledo and Cleveland and stuff, I'll go up to people and go, what are you watching? And I get a much better response here at the biggest week than when I do it in urban areas. So <laughs> I have to definitely agree with that. Any other questions? Or I know one of the things we were curious about with the panelists is um, what you love about birding and if that's changed through the years. I think at first, the thing that was the most amazing thing were the visuals and things flying by. And when you first get to the point where you get a piece of a bird and you know what that bird is, and then you wait for confirmation and then the bird. So the identification process as a visual process was the first thing that drew me in. And it was so, it was so addictive that I left my entire life and started doing it full time. Like that's how addictive it was. But as the years went on, I think that again, like I was talking about before, sort of realizing the larger picture, realizing how sounds and smells and even that particular bush and that particular light. And I moved sort of from satisfaction at identification to sort of predictive birding or an understanding of where I was and what might happen as opposed to what identifying exactly what had just happened. And then coming around and saying, oh, well, you know, this looks like a, a, a really good spot for lark sparrow. And then there's a lark sparrow. It's amazing. Hi, this is Chuck again. Um, one of the things that has always been uh, ex uh, intensely satisfying to me as, as a traveling birder and not a patch birder is the uh, sense of connection that I have to the landscape that I just visited. Uh, I, I call it ownership in a way because after I've been to the San Rafael Gratz lands in southeastern Arizona, I feel like I have a stake in it. It's, it's, it's part of me and I... I have a reason to care for it now, um, and and you know I, I feel the same way when I when I walk the paths at the, at the bird observatory or any other spot. I feel like I have had a personal experience there, uh, brought to me by the birds and brought to me by the, the the life of that landscape. And no matter where it is, it's very difficult for me to say, mm, I don't really care what happens to that patch of land, um, even if it is thousands of miles away or or up in Churchill or or anywhere far away, you might, you know, it's easy to say that this isn't relevant to me because I live only in Milwaukee and I really only care about Milwaukee, um, when in fact I feel like I am a citizen of all the places that I've birded. And um, that knits me to the world and I'm, I'm grateful to that, or grateful for that. And one of the places I'm grateful for is Panama. <laughs> <laughs> so this is kind of two parts of this, but as I started to study vocalizations, I started to also want to learn the call notes and all the little other sounds of birds to make. 
And that led me back to what you guys are talking about, your patch birding, in a sense, is I want to now go through Prospect Park and know every single sound I hear. Of course, that's impossible. But you can get pretty close, and that's been a big change in the way I bird. And in a sense, that's taken me away from the listing aspect of birds as much as it is to the learning aspect of birds. So it's as satisfying for me to go through the park and hear every single thing and go, oh, I know that was the, you know, the secondary call of a white-throated sparrow, not that call, but that call, and so on and so forth. Um, it is a slippery slope. I mean, you yeah. it <laughs> can be very absorbing, but it it does really bring to life a, even a local patch in a way that you can't imagine possible because maybe there's no migrants there, but you're still hearing so many interesting things, and that that to me was a change, sort of a development over time. All right, uh, Carlos from Panama. <laughs> the, one of the things that had changed uh, to me is technology now with bird watching. Uh, now have been able to have a field guy on your phone, being able to record or call what you are in the field that you don't recognize and going back home and study it. That's something that had changed a lot. Uh, remember when I started guiding a long, long time ago, um, you know, there used to be tapes, you know, and now it's so beautiful because you can send a call to a friend who is an expert and say, you know, I heard this bird, I don't know what it is. And they send it to you and you can have an answer immediately almost with technology. So that, that have changed. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I can add to that. Um, we were giving a talk, a talk up at McGill University in Canada. And after the talk, um, a gentleman came up. He was a retired physiology professor. He had been recording the red-eyed vireos in his block in the city for five years. He had sonograms of every individual. He could recognize every individual. He had laid them out. He knew how many individual elements each one sang and in kind of the way they organized the elements within the song, which was amazing. And I said, you know, people don't have a good way of distinguishing Philadelphia Vireo from Red Eye. Let me send you some Philadelphia Vireo recordings. And he looked at those and he said, ah, Red-Eyed Vireos have 20 to 25 elements that they randomly sort of mix up. Philadelphia Vireo has five, and they repeat them in order. So if you learn one of the, vo of the phrases and then listen for it to return, if it returns right away, regularly, you know it's a Philadelphia Vireo. If you don't hear it for a while, it's a Red-Eyed Vireo. Big breakthrough. That's a citizen science. I mean, that's the kind of thing. That's <laughs> you got to change your e-bird report there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's. Uh, I I looked at it myself too, um, but anyway, that there are a lot of things you can do. Like Carla said, recording, uh, you know, just the stuff around you. How many songs does a song sparrow sing in your neighborhood? Does one individual have one song or five songs, ten songs? Do they repeat them in order? Does the neighbor match their song? Does the neighbor neighbor actually sing the same song as that guy or a different song? Fascinating stuff, and it really can be a lot of fun to study. Well, for me, I've I've been birding a long time, uh, so a lot has changed for me, but a lot has changed for you too, and part of what has changed my desire, uh, my focus on birding is more on people than my own personal skill because I've reached a level where I I'm confident walking out of the field almost anywhere uh, in the world and picking up and learning things. Kind of as I go, if I go to a new country, I'll learn new things that I hadn't even studied before just being in the field. So I've paid attention to 
what is it that I do that is I take for granted that is easy, and how can I share it with other people so that they can have the same confidence and have the same enjoyment and pleasure that I have when I go birding? So it's I've gone back to some really, really simple things about what really makes a person happy, kind of the psychological thing. And that's part of why I wrote Windex for the Soul. But it's also what I'm focused on now is I want to be able to to share the good that I have, what little it is. There's so much about birding. This is one of the things I love is I'm always learning. And I never, ever feel like an expert, even though I sit on panels and I talk to, to uh, you know, groups of people all over the place, I still am learning, just like you all. But if I can share how I learn in such a way that you are able to pick things up easier, the more confidence you have, the more often you'll go out in the field and the better your experience will be. And hopefully, the better your experience that you have, you'll be so excited you're going to tell somebody else. And that is how we build birding. Uh, this is neat. And um, I, I find myself constantly amazed by the dedication and skill of the next generation of birders. Um, I started birding when I was a preteen, and I was helped along by the organization that I was a part of in uh, Southwest Missouri. And so I feel now, later on in my, my birding career, um, that I sort of have an obligation to help out those people who are coming up behind me who are way better than, than I was when I was that age. And um, I always want to make sure that I am an, an advocate for them and um, to help put them in positions of leadership wherever we can um, because there are some, some young people that are doing some really amazing things and uh, they definitely deserve attention for that whenever you know, we, can, we can give that to them. We are just about out of time, so I would like to thank all the panelists for sharing their stories and giving the advice they've given here. Thank you all for coming. Jeff has a final word about the ABA, I believe. Well, I just wanted to sincerely say thank you um, to, to all the panelists and all the contributors, and, and especially to you, Lisa, um, for having the American Birding Association be the beneficiary of, um, of this effort. and. Um, I hope people had fun with it. I hope people have fun reading it. And um, I hope everybody feels good that uh, in doing so, you're uh, contributing to inspiring and, and cultivating that next generation. And, um, and that, that caring, generous spirit of birding is, is on such good display here at the Biggest Week at American Birding. And uh, anyway, it's always, always a pleasure and a privilege to be a part of that. So. Thank you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Your support helps us to continue to offer this podcast, Birding News, Birders Guide, and other resources to the birding community free of charge. You can help by joining the ABA at aba.org slash join or making a donation at aba.org slash donate. We're running another membership promotion right now. Join, renew, or gift a membership before June 30th, 2017, and you will be entered in a drawing to win a new pair of Leica Trinovid HD binoculars. I don't even think that these are available in North America yet. I got a look at them at the biggest week. They are really great. 
A special shout out to Elizabeth and Liam McManus of Olympia, Washington, especially you, Liam, and Michael and Don Krause of Knoxville, Tennessee, all of whom joined the ABA in the last couple weeks and noted this podcast as one of the reasons. Welcome and thank you for your support. Executive producer of the American Birding Podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from Greg Neese and David Hartley. John's band, The Hangabouts, does the music. Thanks also to Samson Technologies, makers of professional audio equipment who have provided me with some new toys to use on this podcast. I hope you notice the difference. You can find us on the web at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. That is not to be confused with the American Beverage Association, the trade organization that represents bottlers of soft drinks and whatnot. They don't really appear to have much of a social media presence, so people might find it soda confusing that they caffeined it. Sorry, those just popped into my head. You can reach me with your questions and comments and complaints maybe at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.